Welcome back to New View EDU, a podcast from the National Association of Independent Schools on what's next for school leaders. I'm Tim Fish, Chief Innovation Officer at NAIS. As our listeners know, the team at New View EDU is passionate about highlighting schools that unleash the power of students. Well, today I am overjoyed to introduce our community to an international leader in the design of agency-rich, authentic, purpose-driven school. Chris Lehman is the founding principal and CEO of the Science Leadership Academies, a network of inquiry-driven, project-based public schools in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. SLA was named the Dell Center of Excellence for Technology and Education and is considered a national model in the School 2.0 movement. Chris is co-author of Building School 2.0, How to Create the Schools We Need. And in 2013, he co-founded the nonprofit Inquiry Schools to help schools create more empowering, modern learning experiences. You know, I first got to know Chris through his work leading the Educon Conference. This is an amazing educational experience that runs each year at the school. The conference is completely run by students, parents, community members, and staff. And when I first attended, I was struck by the number of international thought leaders who were there as attendees. People I would typically see on the keynote stage at big conferences were sitting on the floor with a bunch of educators, eating a turkey sandwich, and talking about designing the schools we need. It is a powerful, powerful conference. So let's get to it with Chris Lehman. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on New View EDU. You know, your work at Science Leadership Academy has inspired me for years. I've been to Educon a few times and every time just could not believe how impactful it is to have students leading that conference. Thank you so much. Just want to start off by saying thank you for everything you've done for so many people. And before we jump into a conversation about designing the school of the future and to build on your great book, What School 2.0 Should Look Like, I would love to know a little more about you, about your journey as a student, as an educator. Like, how did you end up in this spot, leading a school and getting it started? I think I ask myself that question every day. <laughs> it's, you know, that's a Big question, right? I, I think on some level, I think the first is that like I was good at the game of school, but even when I was in, in school, you know, in high school or whatever, I recognized that it was a game and I loved learning, but I quickly realized that there were teachers that I had who were encouraging me to learn and there were teachers that I had that the game was there to be played, but it wasn't about the learning in, in many ways and did well in high school, got me into a good college, da, 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 da. But I also was that kid who got in trouble in class because I was reading, hmm. <laughs> you know, and again, I'm the son of a, of a union lawyer and uh, a classroom teacher and learning and school and sort of discourse and like argue to learn and that sort of inquiry model of like, how do we dig into big ideas was, was prevalent in my home. 
And that was, for me, really impactful. So I think on some level, I always had this idea that like as much as I loved learning and as much as I loved like an amazing classroom, I also recognized that there was a lot of classrooms that fell short of that. And and as much as I was good at the game, I recognized that there were a lot of kids I knew and a lot of my friends who were very, very smart, but didn't play that game and didn't have the kind of success that I had in school or didn't value school mm-hmm. work. And so for me you know, went through college and did all the things. And everybody was like, oh, you know, you're an English major. What are you going to do? Be an English teacher? Ha, ha, ha. And I was like, well, yes. <laughs> For me, I majored in English because I remember sitting down with my 11th grade English teacher talking about like, what do I want to study? I don't know. I'm interested in all these different things. And he was like, look, man, like I f- spent four years reading good books and talking about them. That didn't suck. Yeah. Actually sounds like a really good thing. And then when I went into the classroom and I, you know, I worked for a few years out of college and then went back, I, I really felt like at 22, if I went into teaching, I was going to burn out. I, I know mm-hmm. myself a pretty passionate guy. And I was smart enough to recognize when I was 22 years old that I didn't know how to say no. And not only that, but like, I actually, this is kind of a fun story, was accepted into what I believe was the second cohort of Teach for America. Oh, wow. That was one of two job offers I had right out of college. The other one was working for a nonprofit organization making $15,000 a year. So teaching was the lucrative job offer. But I didn't think I had anything to offer high school kids. They were going to put me in as a reading specialist in Brooklyn. And I was like, what do I have to offer these kids? I don't know anything. And I'm just going to get eaten alive by this job because I have no perspective at all. And I knew that about myself, which was, I think, one of the moments of sort of clarity that I've looked back on my life and I'm like, oh, good good job, you. Mm. So I went and worked for the nonprofit. I wanted a little bit of distance between me and the kids I was going to serve as far as my own maturity level and my own personness. And so I worked for two years and then went to graduate school and then went into the classroom as an English teacher and technology teacher. And by then I felt like I'd learned enough that I had something to offer the kids. And I also knew enough about myself to know how to manage, you know, really challenging sort of roller coaster that is the teaching life, especially a teaching life in New York City, in Philadelphia, and in, in places where kids are walking in the door. And, and this is true everywhere, no matter where you teach, but certainly in our cities, kids are walking in the door with stuff, right? And I was this, you know, 25-year-old white kid who grew up in the suburbs. And I don't think at 22, I had the emotional maturity or the distance or any of that. But at 25, one might argue that 25, I'm not sure I did either <laughs> in retro. But I had just enough that I, I did not suck at the job and really fell in love with the classroom, fell in love with teaching, and was at a school that actually I'm going back to their 30th reunion of the opening of the school on Saturday, which is exciting. But it was a new school. I got there when the first class were seniors, and I helped these two founders achieve their vision of the school. And the really cool part about working in service of somebody else's vision and working at a new school and working in New York in the sort of go-go 90s and early 2000s when startup was all the rage, both in education and in you know the sort of rest of the world, I had the opportunity to dream. Working at this other school that was a startup that was somebody else's vision, it was about 80% of what I thought a school could be, or 75%, somewhere in that range. And that last 25% was the loose tooth I could never stop wiggling. And I think if you go work in a traditional school that has been around for a million years or whatever... You're not dared to dream, oh, maybe you could start a school someday. Mm-hmm. But we work for two school founders, helping to build the systems that would then prop up or sort of support the school. You're given license to dream. 
So I had this idea of starting a school that was fully inquiry driven and project based and technology infused and modern and caring. And it was the sort of experience of, of starting a school with two really amazing founders and this incredible group of teachers that I worked with. And people started saying to me, like, oh, you're going to start a school someday. And the cool thing is, is like when, like I said, when people give you that license to dream, you, you actually do so. Wow. So tell us more about the school you've created. I mean, you gave, told us a little bit about it, but like, it's quite a place. It is quite a place. And like, what does it feel like? And when you walk around, Chris, and you walk up and down the hallways and you're like, oh man, it's happening. This is it. This is what it's supposed to be. What are you seeing when it feels right? What's going on? Great question. I, I think, and I think that's an important thing for all of us who actually are in the school every day to remember that like more often than not, it does go right. Like it's interesting. Final grades just came out. And I was just sitting with a couple of my teacher leaders and we were looking at the grade span and how kids did and all the rest of that stuff. And overwhelmingly, kids did phenomenally well and we're really proud. And I made a point of saying to everybody, like, look at the grade distribution. We spend an incredible amount of our mental energy and time on the kids who need that extra layer of support and we spend a lot of time with. And look at how many kids are thriving beyond our wildest imaginations. And so when we get frustrated, because I think it's very easy when you're doing the thing to see the whole nut the donut. And I think one of the things that I try to do as a leader is give people, students and teachers alike, and parents and everybody, those step back moments where you get to say like, oh, like, yeah, the thing does work really, really well. So what I see when it's going right, I mean, like today was a great day. Like, for example, as it so happened, today was uh, Culture Day, which is a new tradition at SLA. These kids just started this year. And a group of kids who are part of our Students of Color Association said, we want to have a celebratory day. And we used to do something similar, not quite this expansive as what they just pulled off years ago, pre-pandemic. But of course, like many schools, we're rebuilding a lot of traditions and the, you know, now as we're on the other, you know, sort of on the other side of all of what we've lived through. And they said, we want to do a day where we bring in parents and friends and whatever and do all of these incredible culture day workshops and like celebrate all of the rich culture, but not only to celebrate it, but also get the chance to teach a little bit about our cultures to other people. So the kids planned the whole thing with obviously teacher supervision and teacher support and all of that. But we had all the kids taking part in these culture day workshops today. And we had drum circles, we had storytelling and folk tales, we had the history of hip hop, we had food, and then we had this incredible marketplace where kids came in and they were selling food from their cultures and things like that. And I I'm frightened to get on a scale tomorrow morning. <laughs> we had salsa dancing. We had just amazing, amazing workshops, all student-led, all student-run, or like they were bringing in parents or friends or whatever. Yeah, but yeah, sure. They generated the whole day. And you can't do something like that if the first time they have the agency to own their education is this thing. Because then it's this clunky, clunky thing. But when kids have felt all along that they have agency, they have ownership, that this is their school and their education and they, they are valued and valuable, then when they have the opportunity to plan something like this, they go, you know, to the nth degree. They just do it. Right. And they know how to do it. And they, and I'm sure they bumped in the walls along the way. I'm sure there were things that, you know, but they did it, right? It, it's so funny, Chris. If you were to boil down this podcast, right, to a simple question, it has been at this moment where we are now, what should be the purpose of school? Like, why do we have it? 
I think you think deeply about this question. And I'm curious, what about, because for me, like there is so much in that story you just told about Culture Day, about this uh, this sort of this expression. When you walked around, when you saw the, the individual students, you talk about belonging, you talk about feeling like you're needed in a community. You talk about being seen and known. You can get this. I mean, this is what was there as well as the learning that was going on. That's right. Well, and understanding the activism of it as well, right? Because like I was able to, at the end of the day, you know, in our auditorium, as we did our sort of end of day celebration of all we had just done, I was able to stand in front of the school and say like, you know, A, celebrate all of the organizers and everybody and all their stuff. But I said also, you know, like understand in this country right now, the diversity of this community is rare. In fact, it's getting harder. And in many, many places in this country, a day like today wouldn't happen, couldn't happen for any number of reasons. Therefore, if today was impactful for you, and I think it was as I look out onto all of you, right? If today matters, if this matters, then you have an obligation to nurture it while you're here and build it in other places when you leave. So when we talk about what is the purpose of education, and again, obviously for me, it's a public education, but I think this, this has resonance in the independent schools world as well. To me, the first and most important thing that school should do is help students become fully actualized, fully realized citizens of their world. Then you sort of break down all the component pieces of that, right? So like I get super frustrated when people are like, school is about prepping kids for the yes, right. world yep. of work. Because like, number one, we don't know what the heck that's going to look like target of epic proportion. But two, economic independence is an incredibly important part of being a fully realized citizen, right? If you can't pay the rent, you got a problem. But it's not the whole thing. And if you put it first, you get a very different set of answers, right? Because what we want in our workers, and not in all workplaces, but in many workplaces, we don't want a high degree of agency in like a lot of bosses don't want a high degree of agency and a, and a high degree of ownership and a high degree of critical thinking. They want people who follow their lead, right? Like you get a bad, you know, McGregor boss. and yeah. So for me, when we say to citizenship and fully realized, fully actualized citizenry is the purpose of school. Number one, we're, we're acknowledging a lot of things. Number one, we're, uh, we're acknowledging that society needs an educated populace, right? That Part of what you're doing in school is for you because you've got to be a fully realized citizen. But part of what we're doing is for the world because the world needs fully realized citizens. And I think all we got to do is look at our political discourse in this country to realize how much that's lacking. But number two is we're putting economics where it belongs, which is underneath citizen, right? Because if we say citizen, then yes, how you pay the rent, what you do with your working life, how you do something that is meaning a meaningful in your career does matter, but it matters on equal footing with the kind of consumer you are, the kind of parent you are, the kind of partner you are, the kind of neighbor you are, the kind of scholar you are, the kind of activist you are. And all of those things make up a citizen. And it doesn't privilege this, like the market needs more workers churn over these other parts of who we are. So when we say like, oh, we educate the whole, the whole person or the whole student, or the whole child, and then you say why, and it's like, because being a citizen requires the whole of ourselves. And now there's a reason for that. 
the world needs you to be fully actualized, to solve the problems of our world, and to, to be fully engaged in that world. For me, it boils down to four words, thoughtful, wise, passionate, and kind. Right. And that, those are my North Star. Like when I, when people say like, what do you hope four years at SLA does for the kids? I want their heads full of thought. I want them to have the wisdom to apply those thoughts in meaningful ways. I want them to have the passion to push through when the world tells them it cannot be done. And I want them to be kind because I think we need more of that in the world. If we take those four words, I love them. I think they're a wonderful bumper sticker for how to think about what we're really trying to do, what the purpose is. And then, Chris, I look at like school as we traditionally think of school, high school in particular. We traditionally think of high school and we think of the bell system and lots of kids and moving around and the bus and the da-da-da and the whole thing. And I think, okay, what about that designed experience, the way we architect it, is developing those four words? Very little is the answer. Very little, in fact. And yet when I do work, I do a lot of work on strategy and I'm meeting with a board of trustees or I'm meeting with a leadership team and I say, at the end of the day, what's it all about? Why does this school exist? What is it that you're really trying to do? And what I often hear is to build very much like what you said, put good people in the world, people who are kind, people who are compassionate people who will support others. People often, what I hear is less about individualism and more about thinking for others and with others and being part of a community. And then when I look at that experience, that's not what they do. When I walk the halls, I mean, they're not bad. It's not bad. Good people doing good work for kids, care deeply about kids, but we're not intentional in that design. So what's it look like to design a school where those four words are developed through the experience? I mean, the easy answer is read my book, <laughs> Building School 2.0, How to Create the Schools We Need, available on Amazon. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of answers to that question. I mean, one of the questions you always ask is like, these things can't happen by fiat, right? They can't happen like, because you hire a really caring teacher. The question becomes, what are the systems and structures? So like, we can unpack any number of them. Let's look at this idea of kindness and this idea of the ethic of care. And again, we didn't invent this idea, nor have we perfected it. We are always a work in progress. But one of the core structures of SLA is advisory. An advisor is one teacher and 20 kids, and they stay together all four years, right? So every student at SLA knows who their advocate is, right? Who their first advocate. It doesn't preclude having other advocates, like I coach Boys Ultimate Frisbee team and I love my boys a ton and obviously I'm their advocate like when they need stuff, but they're for, it doesn't happen because a kid happens to play a sport or is the editor of the newspaper. Every single child has an advocate and those classes meet twice a week for about 45 minutes. It is everything from turning those, you know, so like every teacher in this building is a frontline, like sort of like low level general stuff counselor, right? Because they're dealing with the like, oh my God, I got to fight with my mom or my girlfriend and I just broke up or blah, blah, blah. And they're dealing with that stuff, right? And then one thing that does is that means our counselors have the, a little more time to dig deep when we've got kids who really are facing some challenging stuff. Um, it also means if a kid is struggling with a teacher, right? Because, you know, we ask teachers to navigate 125 relationships a day. We ask kids to navigate seven adult relationships or six adult relationships over the course of a semester or whatever. And that's hard and you don't hit on all of them. But like, let's say, Tim, you were in the advisory of Ms. Manazian, who just walked by my office to say goodbye, right? 
and you had me in class and you couldn't figure out what I was talking about. Again, you went to Ms. Manazian and you were like, yo, like Lehman, I don't know what to do. I, no matter what I do in his class, I never seem to do what the guy wants me to do, help. And you know, the first thing Ms. Manazian might do is say like, look, he's my colleague, good guy, little quirky, let me give you some strategies for working with Lehman because I because you're not the first kid I've had who's had him in class, right? Obviously. And so you go back, you try the strategies. I still, whatever, the relationship was tough. Now Ms. Manazian can actually call a meeting and sit down with you and me and her where she is navigating that space and le- and leveling that power dynamic playing field where your voice and your experience in my class actually matters. You know, she will create the space where you could be like, you know, Mr. Lehman, no matter what I do, it seems like we're not connecting and you seem always mad at me and why. Ms. Benazian would create that space and you would have to listen to what I say, like, well, you know, Tim, I mean, like, seems like you have to go to the bathroom for 20 minutes class every day. It's a little frustrating. And you can say like, well, like, yeah, but you know, also like if you yell at me when I come back, it's not exactly, and you have those dialogues, very, very human, very real, very honest dialogues. And you as a student are able to have it because there's an adult who knows you as a person navigating that with and for you, right? That's how you create a caring school. And if you do it in such a way that it's honest, which we always try to do, you end up moving a little because you understand better what I'm asking and what's frustrating me about having you in class. And I move a little because I have a better understanding of you as a a student. And that, you know, advisor is able to navigate that space. And the beautiful thing is, Every adult in this building has been on both sides of that equation. When we were the advisor helping one of our students, one of our advisees navigate a challenging moment with a teacher, but we've also all been that challenging teacher. So there's no blame or shame here. It's not like, oh, Mr. Lehman's a jerk because he won't work with Tim. It's a recognition of our shared humanity and a recognition of the challenging competing needs that teachers and students have when everybody's navigating a zillion relationships a day. But you create a core relationship that is deeper and longitudinal that can serve as that sort of anchor for a kid and serve at to, again, level the playing field in the rest of, and, and sort of really fundamentally shift that power dynamic that exists in the sort of traditional structure of schools. There's a whole lot that's going on in that advocacy, in that relationship that's built over those four years. And the part I also like about it, Chris, is that it's intentional. It's unwavering. It's something you say we would never give that up because that's so key to the work we do, right? And so one of the things I'm also interested in as we think about this is you all, I think you talked about it earlier about giving students agency. And your point was that you can't just sort of do it one time and say, okay, now you have agency to run this thing and expect it to just happen. You've got to do it in small ways along the journey. What are some ways where on a daily basis, students might feel that agency that then builds that to help them be able to design bigger things in the future? Sure. Well, and I think it's interesting, and this is something I try to actually do in my own language. We don't give anyone else agency, Mm. right? We as human beings, you have agency because you are a human, because you are alive, as do I. Now, lots of institutions in our society, school being primary among them, take away agency 
But what actually we try to do is not give students agency, but help them unlock their own. Love that. And, and I didn't come up with that language, by the way. I should cite Bud Hunt, Bud the teacher, for those folks who know him on the Twitters. Bud was the first person I heard to describe it that way. I love that. And, you know, I've said give agency for years. And I think it would be unlock agency. It would be empower agency. It would be... Even empowering, because that's actually the conversation he and I had, because I used to say empowering all the time. And he was like, that's still you assuming that you've got to give yes. that to someone. Yes. And so that notion of unlocking agency is a recognition of what we all sort of have because we are human. And then much of the sort of apparatus of society kind of hides from us or takes away from us or what have you. So, and you know, you still use, I mean, empower is a good word. So we still use But I know, but I like unlock. I love it. So, and that's all Bud Hunt. So thanks, Bud. Thanks, Bud. So there's lots of ways you can unlock agency, right? And everything from like, you know, where is the space in a project? Well, let's back up. Number one, the idea of the core values, right? Inquiry, research, collaboration, presentation, reflection, this iterative cycle of learning that we do here that starts with the big questions we ask, dares kids to, to seek out answers, work together to make those answers better, to create artifacts of their learning, and then to genuinely have those step back moments to say like, what is the thing I just did and, and how does that affect me? What did I learn? What do I think? Like all these things. Like, so that in and of itself is an is sort of a, to agency rich, I suppose, way to learn, right? That we can ask big questions together. Right. As opposed to I am teacher. I have information. You are student. I give you information. You student regurgitate the information I have given to you back to me so I can validate myself and give you a grade. So one is that very notion of how do you ask big questions? Right. And, and what do these questions mean and how do we do this and how do I help you learn how to really ask those critical questions and then seek out those answers? And again, that's a really important thing, like seek out answers, not quiz me on what I already know as teachers so I can just report it to you, but rather how do I seek out answers in the world that may or may not be the answers you teacher have? I think that is that very iterative model of the inquiry driven education that we have, I think in and of itself is built on helping kids to tap into that agency, right? And to learn how to harness it, to, to get better at it, to really be a full learner, not just for learning's sake, but understanding that this learning that I'm doing actually matters in the world and, and I can be an active agent in my world. Yeah. Well, you know, we, and we had Mary Helen Imordino Yang on a little while ago, and she's a neuroscientist from USC, and her research is around the inseparable relationship between cognition and emotion. That literally you cannot learn about something that you don't care about, that you are not connected to in some way. And so much of what I think your model does is it creates that connection. It brings me in. That's what this unlocking agency does is it invites me, as we talked about before, to bring my voice to the table. And to figure out the why. And then when you marry that with this idea of like everything is towards helping you become a fully actualized citizen, then, you know, like one of the basic questions is like, why do I need to know this? If a high school science education does not help students understand fundamentally that the way in which they live their lives, the products they buy, the kind of house they build uh, or live in, you know, the way they use power, the car they drive, that all of these things have profound impact on our world, right? Then you have failed children because the ability to apply a scientific lens to the choices we make every day as human beings is a fundamental part of being a citizen. And I don't say that just because we're Science Leadership Academy, but because I think like science is in the American 
and it's not just America, but in the high school milieu, science is criminally undervalued. We just went through a pandemic. I think we saw what happens when you have a society that undervalues why learning science matters and how being able to apply those ideas and that knowledge and that content and those questions to the challenges we face in our world, how if you don't have that, you're not making good choices for yourself or others. Why read Hamlet? We don't read Hamlet because Shakespeare is beautiful. And I love Shakespeare. Like, I love Shakespeare. But we read Hamlet because if you're a 15-year-old kid trying to figure out who you are as separate from the ideas and hopes and dreams of your parents, and you can understand that you are swimming in thousand-year-old waters, and that dude who's been dead for 600 years had something to offer you in that question that helped you answer those questions for yourself, like, cool, iambic pentameter, yay. But more importantly, the fundamental questions of the texts we read, be they 500 years old or, you know, Elizabeth Acevedo's Poet X, they help us become better. And if teachers don't understand that the, that the reason we read these texts is to find those questions that matter to kids and show them mirrors of the world that these questions have been asked for a long time and smart people have grappled with them and that they get to grapple with them too, then we do a disservice to children. I mean, yes, we read because language is beautiful and wonderful and I'm an English teacher and I love language, but we read because it gives us insight into the human condition and this incredible journey we have been on forever and that we are part of that journey and the questions we ask and the struggles we have are struggles that others have had before us and that their answers can inform ours. And that's cool. That is cool. And you know, for me, it's also another piece, Chris, the way you just told that story. It's not, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this community. And I'm not alone in this body that is 16 years old that's trying to figure out who I am. That other people have been at the same place I am. And there's a world of wonder. For me, I was a science guy. And science was about wonder. Science was about exploration. It was about finding something new. As we continue on, I'm going to switch gears for a second, because not only are you a founder and leader of an incredible school that is doing the work we just talked about, you are also a leader of a staff and you're a principal and you're dealing with all the stuff that a principal deals with every day. So I'm curious, there are a lot of people who are listening to this podcast who are currently in a similar role or aspire one day to be in a similar role. What advice do you have or thoughts do you have about leadership? Stay in the classroom as long as you possibly can. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, there's a lot. I mean, I think number one, you know, one of the things that we talk about uh, is this idea of be one school, right? So I can't want one thing for my students and not want the same thing for my teachers, right? So if we believe in an inquiry-driven model of learning for the kids, then our PD has got to be inquiry-driven. If I want teachers to care for children, then I have to care for my teachers, right? Uh, and it's funny, like I literally, my roster, like so grades were due at 5 p.m. yesterday. And of course, you know, not every person met the deadline. And my roster chair, who's unbelievable and is a just like, A, he's a phenomenal human being, but also just analytical brain ability to sort of, and, and is always willing to take on the work and does everything and is incredible. And 
he came into my office to vent to me today because, of course, a couple people didn't do it. And he came into vent and we talked about it. And he said to me, he was like, why is it that every year we say the same things and every year there's a couple of faculty members who don't get it and whatever? And I said, he's like, when do we get to stop telling that, saying these things? And I said, you don't. It's the forever lesson. And I said, because we built a school, like if this was a command and control school where everybody met the deadline. Yeah. We'd never get the creativity and the funkiness and the and the understanding that kids weren't going to hit the deadline sometime and we wanted teachers to be able to like forgive them. And so we have to forgive when our colleagues don't and da, da, da. So like we could build a school where the most important thing was nailing the deadline, but we wouldn't get the creativity and the passion and the ideas and the forgiveness and the care. Now, the problem with that is that you can occasionally feel crappy when you feel like you're getting taken advantage of. But you have to remind yourself that we make an active choice to be this school. And so we're always going to seek to mitigate. We're always going to seek to help people be their best selves and to not miss deadlines and all the rest of it. But that piece of the puzzle is endemic to who we are. That's right. That's right. I love that you say, you start with this notion of we're going to be one school. And what we believe and live every day for our students, we're going to believe and live every day for our staff. You know, one of the things I hear about a lot is this idea that like the next generation of teachers, right? That this sort of the, what we're seeing was a shortage of folks who want to go into education. But Chris, I'm curious about how do we create the environments that are going to attract and retain that next generation of those people that have the kind of impact on our students that you're talking about. Because I'm a huge believer, while I think the role of teacher is changing, I don't think there's ever been a more important time to fill our schools with amazing people, amazing teachers. How do you go about it? This is a moment where all of us who care about school, irrespective of sector, need to understand that this profession needs to be valued. That's number one. Number two, this has to be a sustainable job. We need to be clear about what we can and cannot offer. The parent who says, I expect four meetings a week with my child's teachers because I want blah, 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 blah. Like this notion, it almost gets like, you know, something you referenced earlier about this idea of like the individual versus, you know, in contrast or conflict with the collective. I literally just had to write an email recently where I said to a parent, like, you need to understand that what a teacher is telling you is what they can reasonably offer given the, the size of their caseload. And I'm asking you to respect this teacher. So on some level, there has to be a, a reminder of what school is and that school serves two purposes. It serves the individual student, which it absolutely does, but it also serves the larger society. And if we treat it as merely like, I want my child to get the whole pie, that's a problem. So when we think about like attract is the big societal thing. We got to stop demonizing teachers in schools, period. Retain is creating sustainable pathways for people, right? Creating sustainable lives, not expecting that people have to be a 70 hour a week teacher to be effective. And I don't think 40 is gonna get us there. I have to admit that, at least not in the public sector where a teacher is gonna have 120 kids on their academic caseload, but I think 50 should. And how do we make the job sustainable and workable and doable? How do we share ideas, share processes, share frameworks so that way we're not all reinventing the wheel anymore. And there are these shared languages and shared ways to interact so that within a school building, we are 
leveraging a pedagogical efficiency that allows us to get to the most important parts of the work the quickest. And that's true for both students and teachers and parents. And then how are we creating caring institutions that people feel cared for and valued and people feel like they matter and teachers don't feel like they're on that grind? And all of that's really, really hard, uh, especially in a moment of public funding and all the things and yada, yada, especially in a moment of sort of societal brokenness. I don't know a single educator right now, like literally, I don't know one educator right now who doesn't feel that the mental health challenges that we are seeing, students, adults, doesn't matter, but that like we are, we are not okay, right? Like not just in education, but like the world is not okay. And all of that comes in our doors and we're still expected to teach. Mm-hmm. And so how do you recognize that moment? How do you honor the moment and still get the work done? but also not fry people, burn people out, like all those things. And those are really hard questions, right? Because there's not a great answer. I, I genuinely don't know what to do when you get a parent, you know, like who says, and, and, and this is, and I say this with utter empathy, my kid is in and out of placement, right? For mental health. And I still want them to get straight A's. And you're like, ah, mm. and I get it. To me, the human thing is to say, look, we're never going to fail your child. We're going to do everything we can. We're going to move mountains for your kid. But also, if school's not the most important thing in their life right now, because right now they're like struggling with profound mental crisis that has them, you know, outpatient services or inpatient, how do we set thoughtful, reasonable goals that allow your kid to do the work, to keep growing? Or even like, is, you know, like we had to say this a couple of years ago, like what we said to a parent whose kid was going through this major uh, health crisis, serious, real you know, hospitalization, health crisis. And I finally said to the parent, I don't care if your child graduates in five years because I don't know how to honor who your child is as a student when there's no way I want them even thinking about grades or classes right now. And if we're transactional, we push them through because we push them through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if we care, we say, take five. Yeah. Who cares? You got the rest of your life to work. (laughs) Yeah. Chris, I don't think we say that enough. I think the fifth year could be something for a lot of kids too. And and not if it's punitive. No, no, no. Not at all. If it's saying you spent four months hospitalized, why in God's name am I going to pile on a bunch of work to give you a grade in something that you're not going to learn in depth because you can't. It's not your focus. That's okay. So take a mulligan. That's the most caring thing I can do for you. That's right. That's an incredible thought. You know, as we, Chris, this has been an awesome conversation and and your insights and wisdom are so, so spot on. You know, I'm curious about what is it that, that as we think about this, the one hope you have, the one wish you have for sort of education generally? Oh my goodness. The one hope I have, the one hope I have is that societally we revalue it. I can't think about that question absent the context in which I work, right? We need a, a, you know, a new deal in public education where we replace old buildings, where we revitalize old buildings, where we spend the money. We need to revalue education and stop thinking that teachers can play every role all the time for every, you know, and create smarter, healthier systems that allow students to feel valued, that allow teachers to feel valued. We need a refocusing on pedagogy where we start to say, what does it mean to teach in this moment in time? 
And how do we do all these things? And how do we do them in a way that recognizes like in a moment where we've got cell phones and this and TikTok and yada, yada, social, that the demands on our attention, the immediacy of the moment where everything is about the hot take, that what school does is slow down. What school does is ask kids to be contemplative. School does is ask kids to genuinely take the time to learn. And how do we understand that that is an urgent need, but not urgent in the way that we see schools operating now where it's just as fast, but rather how do we revalue this and help kids to live in a world that is gonna move at a faster and faster pace? by being able to critically analyze, to think, to question, to create, and to really see themselves in this world, not at a breakneck speed, but rather to have the time to be, again, thoughtful, wise, passionate, and kind. Uh, I love it. Chris, have you heard of the slow food movement? Yes. Right? I think, I think we've got a new one. I'm going to call it, I'm going to call it slow school. And, and I think that's what, that's what we need right? We need to take the time to prepare the meal in a beautiful way, right? And the same thing, we need to take the time to prepare students in a beautiful way. And that is to unlock that agency, as you said, which I'll keep coming back to. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time with our listeners today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Absolutely. Let's all have a great school year. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you. You know, the idea that school urgently needs to help students slow down is such a transformational one that we should all remember. Every time I talk to Chris, I'm so inspired by his commitment to taking the time to really see people, to see their humanity, to see their strengths, to see their needs. I'm going to keep coming back to that idea about agency as well. As you all know, we have been talking about agency quite a bit on this podcast. And the idea that struck me today is that we don't give people agency. We help them unlock the agency that already exists. I think that's a concept I personally have struggled to articulate. And I appreciate Chris helping us frame it in a way that really makes sense for this moment. I'm also in awe of his idea about the purpose of education and how he frames it as being about helping students become fully actualized and realized citizens of whatever world they're going to inhabit. What a way to think about our job as educators, that we're here to help them become part of an educated society, not just workers who serve an economic purpose and can stand on their own two feet. Lastly, I think we can all learn something from Chris's principles of being thoughtful, wise, passionate, and kind. If we carry that forward into our schools and our work, we can't help but produce schools that are full of people who see each other's humanity. Make sure you join us next time for an incredible conversation with the co-authors of a new book, creative hustle on how we can unlock creativity and design thinking in our schools. See you next time on New View EDU.